Oh, Lord, you know my heart, and you know that I always feel so underprayed for this. And please forgive me and forgive us for our lack of prayer, for our lack of begging and petitioning you to speak your word to us. It is so foolish of us because we know that it is absolutely impossible for us to hear you speak from your word apart from your spirit moving through me, on us, to us, through this passage. And so, Lord, please treat it as if I've prayed a thousand prayers for this message. And you know that I haven't, but forgive me and overlook my foolishness. And take this word, take your encouraging, incredibly magnificent passage from 2 Timothy and impress it upon our hearts and minds in such a way that we are encouraged at all points in life, especially in our hardships, and that by our vision of you, we are compelled and inspired to endure all the way to the end, to diligently serve you with all of our hearts. That's all we ask, Father, that is what you intended to happen to the audience that the Apostle Paul was writing to, to Timothy, and that's what you intend for this passage for us this morning. And so do that by the power of your Spirit. Speak through me and open up our hearts to receive your word and cause us to rightly respond to it, to be encouraged and to endure for your own glory that you might be most reflected in us and most magnified in us. Glorify yourself in this time in the proclamation of your word. Reveal yourself to us. Cause us to know you more, to see you more, and to be sanctified and transformed by that as we always should be. And glorify ourselves not just in this act, in this time of worship as we preach your word, but then glorify ourselves in causing it to have the right effect on us afterwards. Lord, this is only possible by your Spirit, and you do it by your Spirit all the time for your name's sake, so please do it here for us, out of your love for us and desire for your glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> if you don't have your Bibles already open there, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the passage today will be from verses 8 through 13. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan, and there's a part of me that's actually embarrassed to use the Lord of the Rings example in a sermon, because I really, I, I, don't, I don't like the movies that much. I, I do like them. They're good movies. My dad's a fan. My brothers are an even bigger fan, especially one brother who won't go name this morning, but he's not here. So I guess it wouldn't be that bad to talk about him. But uh, there's, I mean, Tolkien, the author of the series, he was a believer. And even though um, the writings aren't necessarily as parabolic of the Christian life as, as you would get in a book like Pilgrim's Progress from John Bunyan, there are still so many subtle, amazing illustrations um, throughout the series, throughout the narrative, that point to and illuminate aspects of the Christian life, which are really amazing. And there was one scene in particular, if you know the movies, it's a scene, if you're more familiar with the books, perhaps a chapter. There was one scene in the last movie, in Return of the King, that was too perfect, I just, I could not use it in this sermon. And it's, uh, it's a scene where, if you're familiar with the movies, um, Frodo and Sam have made it, they've trekked all the way through Middle Earth, had a very difficult journey, and they're lying down on the side of Mount Doom. And Frodo is bearing the ring, and the ring is taking its toll on him. He's very weak. 
and very discouraged. And he doesn't think he can make it the rest of the way, even though it's not that far. It's a very steep, difficult climb. They're covered in soot, covered in filth. They have the fire of the lava burning above them. The heat is intense. And so as Frodo is lying there, discouraged, unable to move, unable to pick himself up, Sam, the great friend and the encourager, comes to him and he says something amazing. I want to read it to you. He tells him to remember. He seeks to stir his heart and to encourage his spirit. And he says to Frodo, do you remember the Shire? Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields, and they'll be eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of the strawberries? And Frodo, for a moment, you see his spirit seems to lift, and then he responds in a discouraging tone, No, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. Instead, I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. And then Sam replies, let us be rid of it then, once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And then there's a great part where he picks Frodo up on his shoulders and he starts climbing up the steep mountain of Mount Doom to help destroy the ring once and for all. The reason why I, I picked this example is because I think we can all relate to Frodo. When we suffer, it's natural for our minds to fixate on the darkness, to fixate on the hardship. We let that dominate our thoughts and our attention. But if you're blessed enough to have people like Sam in your life, they'll come along and they will tell you to remember the Shire, to remember the good things that make all of this suffering worthwhile. And oftentimes it's remembering that. It's, it's that vision that encourages our hearts, that compels us to endure to the end, that gives us the strength to persevere. Remembering the Shire reminds us that what we're suffering, what we're striving for is worth it, that we have to succeed now, and that the end for us ultimately will be beautiful. And so it strengthens us and it encourages us. Now let me ask you this. When you're suffering, what do you think of? When things are hard, what does your mind gravitate towards? Perhaps you, like Frodo, have the tendency to fixate on the problems themselves, to let them occupy your attention and dominate your mind. Or maybe you redirect your attention to happier moments in your life. Maybe your marriage, maybe the birth of a son, maybe graduation from school or a great accomplishment at work. Either way, as a Christian, you know the Word of God well enough to probably be able to answer this question, and it's this. What do you think you should be thinking of? What do you think your mind should go to when life is hard? What do you think you should be concentrating on when you're suffering? You know, 2 Timothy is a lot of different things. It's a letter written by Paul to his disciple Timothy. There's a lot of instruction in it. There's a lot of correction in it. Um, there's warnings. There's exhortation. But I would say primarily 2 Timothy is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of encouragement to Timothy for his own hardships, and it's a letter of encouragement to pick up his spirits given how much Paul is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul, of all people in church history and in Scripture, that man knew suffering. The suffering that he went through for the sake of the gospel, physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational, was so extreme. 
And so he, in this letter, is writing to encourage his fellow sufferer and disciple Timothy. And by the grace of God, we have this letter today, and he intends, God intends to do the exact same thing to you that Paul was intending to do to Timothy. He wants to encourage you from this passage in verses 8 through 13. He wants to write to you, he wants to say to you the same things. And what is that that Paul's saying? He tells us, one, to fix our eyes on Jesus. To fix our eyes on Christ. And he tells us to do it in three specific ways. He says, fix your eyes on the person, Jesus Christ, on the man. Fix your eyes on his word. And fix your eyes on his relationship with us. Remember these three things. Remembering Jesus puts into perspective all of the negative thoughts that dominate our attention, especially in times of hardship and suffering. Remembering Jesus, remembering his word, and remembering his relationship with us encourages us, and it compels us to endure. And now by endure, I think that, I think it's likely that Paul had a very different concept of endurance than we do. When I think of the word endurance, I think of, you know, just surviving until the end. That's not endurance for Paul. See, endurance for Paul is not just surviving, it's thriving. It's pushing forward, it's advancing, it's taking ground. It's fighting and and striving with all of his heart. It's carrying the Christian flag high, fighting every last foe, taking every every bit of ground, tooth and nail, clawing all the way till the end. That's the kind of endurance we're talking about here. We're talking about diligent servitude. And so not only should remembering Jesus in these three ways encourage our hearts in suffering, but it should compel us and inspire us and motivate us to pursue him in steadfast servitude just like that. And by his grace, it's my intention for God to encourage you in these ways and to motivate you to that Pauline endurance as well by remembering these three things. So let's look at the first one first. Remember the man, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached, in my gospel. Gosh, that is such a simple verse. Do you not read, need to read a ton of commentaries or know New Testament Greek to understand what this verse says? And yet it is so simple. And yet how often do I need to hear this? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember your brother. Remember your friend. Remember your heavenly lover. The one who set his affection on you before the foundations of the world. Remember what he did. Remember how he walked on water. Remember how he turned the water into wine at the wedding. Remember how he fed the crowds of 4,000 and 5,000. Remember how he gave himself up on a cross. How he let people persecute him and beat him and say horrible, awful, wrong things to him, and he remained silent. Remember what he taught. Remember how he said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the parables he gave. Remember how much he loved people. And remember where he is now. Remember that this Jesus Christ is in heaven. That he's reigning at this very moment from the eternal throne of God. Governing and directing and sovereignly controlling the movement of every single atom and molecule in the universe as I speak. That's where he is. And remember that. He's not finished with this world, that he's coming back again. Remember that very soon, Jesus Christ will break through the heavens, that the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, 
that the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend and he will establish his kingdom on earth forever. New heavens and new earth. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus. Continuing in the verse, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We don't remember Jesus like a graveside memorial. We're not going out to a cemetery to the graveyard, looking at his gravestone and putting flowers down on his empty grave. No, we remember Jesus as a living person. Jesus is alive today. He's not dead anymore. When we remember Jesus, we're remembering a champion. We're remembering a victor over death. We're remembering the person who conquered suffering and sin and Satan in this world and hell. He defeated them all. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And then what? the offspring of David, that yes, this Jesus Christ was the chosen one. He was the one promised from long ago. In the very early covenants, we read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, And Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteous Savior. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David. He is the promised Savior of mankind from long ago. He's the king to sit on the eternal throne of David. Destined to reign forever. And even now he is reigning. And he will continue to reign for all of eternity. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in what? In my gospel. Euangelion, the good news. The good news to who? It's the good news to you. It's your good news. It's such good news to you because this Jesus who rose from the dead and descended from David is the Jesus who saves your soul. He's the Jesus who died to take the punishment that you deserved. That I, you and I, we stood before God condemned as criminals. We deserve to suffer an eternity in hell. And this Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God in my place so that I could be spared. It's the Jesus preached in this gospel, in this good news. Come for our salvation and restoration to break the curse, to set you free from hell. To save all of those who turn from their sins and trust alone in him. That's the Jesus we remember. You know, I think it's funny. Everywhere we go now, we see these little stickers on the back of cars, and they say, remember Jack Hughes, or remember David Holmes, or some, some random person that the person who put that bumper sticker there probably cared about. And you don't just see these on, on the back of cars. You sometimes see them on street signs or on, on lampposts or things like that. People put these stickers up everywhere. Just, just they're tributes to them. They're, they're memorials to them. How I wish that every single sign on the road, and every single bumper sticker said to me, maybe better scream to me, remember Jesus Christ. It's good to remember other people, but remember Jesus first. Gosh, I would love it if every single sign in the world, every single sign I passed and drove by said, remember Jesus Christ, how I need to be reminded of this all the time. I need to see it everywhere, all the time. When it says remember here in verse 8, that's in the present tense. It means to continually remember, to remember constantly, to remember all the time. Not just in hardship, in hardship certainly, but in good times 
In joyful times, in hard times, in bad times, remember Jesus. Not dead, but alive. The man, Jesus Christ. Do you think of Jesus when things are hard? You should. As Sam said to Frodo, remember the Shire. So we say to you, so God says to you, remember Jesus Christ. Get this vision, vision in your head. This is the glory. This is the beauty. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You see, what do we want most in suffering? You know, so, so oftentimes, when we're going through, through hardships in this life, we just ask ourselves, what is the purpose of this? What's the meaning of this? What is this all about? We just want some purpose to our suffering. And when we look to Jesus, we are so encouraged because we realize that it's all for him. We realize this is all so that he would be reflected and glorified in me. And when we see that, it makes everything worth it. We can actually rejoice in suffering. As we read of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, we would consider ourselves blessed by God to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. It is a great joy and honor for us to glorify him by enduring something difficult, by going through a hardship at work or a health crisis or relational trial, anything, whatever it is, if I can do that in such a way that it reflects Jesus Christ, I am honored and I am glad. Let that encourage you. Get that vision of Jesus. It makes everything worth it. Not just as, not just as it encouraging, but it compels us to carry on. <clears throat> It compels us to endure, to push forward, to keep serving him because of who he is. He's worthy of it. And if you see Jesus, if you remember Jesus, you will love him. You will desire to please him regardless of what it costs you. You will desire his glory above all else. You have a right fear for him and a reverence for him and an awe for him that drives you and compels you to serve him diligently with all your heart for all your days. You will endure. Who wouldn't follow Jesus? And give their all for him. If you wouldn't, then you don't know Jesus. I promise you, if you get a glimpse of this person, you will be so captivated and so enthralled, you will have no other choice but to endure in diligent service to him for the rest of your life. There is nothing that you won't be pleased to do for him. So remember Jesus Christ, say this morning. And secondly, remember his word. Continuing on in verse 9, you can read with me. <clears throat> Paul says to Timothy, and God says to you, remember Jesus of the gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Did you catch the simple secret there? What's enabling the apostle to endure everything for the sake of the elect? Well, you can... Notice that if you look at how verse 10 starts, there's a therefore there, and the therefore is there for the part that came right before, which is this. The word of God is not bound. Now think about this. I want you to put yourselves in Paul's shoes for a moment. <clears throat> Paul is bound. Paul's in prison. He has chains and shackles around his legs. He's got chains on his hands. He can't move. He can't go outside. He can't talk to people. He can't preach. But that's not the case of the message. The messenger may be bound, but the message is just the opposite. I want you to contrast the two. See, the word is free. 
The word is strong. The word is powerful and unchained. It's like a mighty lion that's been let out of its cage. It's not bound. It's free to roam. It's free to devour. It's free to destroy. It's untamed. It's unstoppable. It it does what it wants, unhindered. That's the word of God. The messenger might be put down. He might be out. He might be chained, but not the word. Now let me ask you this. What makes God's word like this? Why is God's word like this? Precisely because it's God's. It's not the word of Paul. It's not the word of the apostles. It's not the word of the church. It's the word of God. And that's why this word is unchained. The word of God is not bound because God is not bound. It's all about him. This word can't be stopped because God can't be stopped. And this is his word. This is a very good example, but as I was studying this passage, it reminded me of of a movie that came out uh, several years ago. Once again, it was a movie I, 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 didn't, I didn't like the movie very much. It was called Unstoppable. It was, uh, had Denzel Washington in it. It was about a, an unmanned train that got out of control, and it roared down the tracks. It was vaporizing everything in its path. In the entire movie, you have Denzel Washington and his partner. They're trying to, to just get the train to stop, and they can't get it under control. It's, it's destroying everything in its path. That's the picture I have of the word in this passage. The word is that unstoppable locomotive. The train driver might be gone. He's not in this picture at all. But that train is still roaring down its tracks. It's powered by the relentless, almighty God of heaven. And it's unstoppable. This word will be preached. This word will be believed. This word will prevail and it will smash through the stones of every single hard heart that God has elected to save before the foundations of the world. And so we read in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything, Paul says, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Those God has set in the path of his unchained word will obtain salvation. They will receive eternal glory. No one can stand in their way. No man can stop this word. No country can stop this word. No religion can stop this word. Not Satan, not demons, not hell itself can stop this word from prevailing. This word isn't bound because God isn't bound. And he's unstoppable. He's unchainable. He's free and he's dangerous in this world. And his word will conquer. And so this is such a great encouragement to Paul. He says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything. Gosh, what would it be like if the word was chained? What would it be like if the word was bound? That would be so discouraging for Paul, you could imagine. It it could potentially mean that all of his suffering was for nothing. He was suffering all for a message that wasn't going to prevail, that was stopped by what? Feeble men? By nations? By governments? So discouraging. But the fact is that just the opposite is true. See, the word of God is not bound, and so it gives hope. It enables us to endure everything. Because we know that all of our efforts here in this life will be effective. They will ultimately succeed. Our job here, our mission here, to advance the kingdom of God and to glorify him, that that will succeed. Our labors, our sufferings, our hardships will not be in vain. Even if we are restricted, even if we are hindered, even if we are impaired, God's word is not. It will prevail. 
And so it can give us great confidence because we are guaranteed to prevail in this world. In fact, our success is sure because God's word is not bound. Not only does this encourage us, but once again, this compels us to endure and to diligently press on because of our great success now. You know that you're going to be fruitful. You know that this is going to be effective. God's word can't be stopped. It never has been. It never will be because God's not that way. And so hear this truth. Remember the fact that because of who God is, his word is not bound. And take that and press it deep on your heart. Digest it in the very pit of your stomach. Let it flow into every fiber of your being. And remember that and live it out every day to press on with all your might. Because this word will prevail. Now one more thing to remember for your encouragement and motivation. I want you to remember God's relationship with you. Jesus' relationship with you. Look with me at verse 11, please. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Don't you see again? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. When I read this passage for the first time, I, I had it with kind of an emphasis on myself. You hear it and you read it and it, it causes you to think about the impact that your decisions have and what their, their consequences are and things of that nature. It's not necessarily bad, but this passage is all about Christ. I want us to hear this and to pull our face out of the mud. If you're going through a hard time right now, stop concentrating on the darkness, on the hardship. Turn away. Don't be like Frodo. Don't fixate on that. Remember Christ. Remember the Shire. Remember his word. Remember his relationship with you. You see, what this passage reveals about Jesus is that Jesus is the ultimate definer of your destiny. What I mean by that is this. He's the eternal pivot point. Your decisions, your relationship with him determines everything else in life. Not just here in this world, but for all of eternity. Jesus is the ultimate definer of your destiny. Paul says to trust this saying, to take it to heart, to work it in. There are only two paths in this life. One of death and endurance, and that leads to eternal life and glory. And there's another one of denying Christ that leads to him denying you in the end, in your ultimate destruction I want you to notice there's no option where there's having Christ without dying and enduring and then getting eternal life. That's not in there. There's no third way. There's no highway option. There's only two paths that you have, two ways that you can have a relationship with Christ. You can either deny him or you can have him. And if you have him, you must die and endure till the end, and then you will reign with him. Let's look at this together. Follow me. Paul says in verse in verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Have died is past tense, singular event. We're always supposed to be dying to ourselves, but this is not what Paul's talking about here. He says, if you have died with him, you will also live with him. That death occurs when you're born again. If God has convicted you of your sin, and you have recognized that and confessed that to him and turned from your sin and trusted alone in him to save you, then spiritually speaking, 
you have died with Christ. You are partnered with Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, which means that everything that Jesus did counts for you. In Jesus' death, you effectively died. You were put to death. That old sinful self of yours died with Christ, and when Christ was buried into the grave, he was buried into the grave with him. Your old self, your flesh, buried with Christ. If you have repented and believed that has happened to you, you have died with him. And then what is the promise for us? If we have died with him, Paul says, we will also live with him. Because I have repented and trusted in Christ, that means that I am united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That means that the old Kirk has died. He doesn't exist anymore. In God's eyes, that is finished, that is final. And when Jesus rose from the dead, Kirk spiritually rose from the dead too. And now there's a new person. There's a new Kirk. There's a new self. A new creation made in righteousness and holiness in God's eyes. And that person lives. There's an amazing parable, one of my favorite parables of Christ. It's a very simple one. He says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not produce much fruit. It will not grow. And that's so true. We all get that analogy. What do you have to do with the seed? You have to dig up the dirt and you have to put it in. You have to put it in the grave. And if you do that, that seed will grow into a beautiful flower or a tree or a plant and it will bear much fruit. And the same is true of us. If we have died with Christ, if we've been buried with him in the waters of baptism, if we have gone into that grave with him spiritually, then we will also live with him. Repentance and faith. You can die with Christ. And then verse 12. That happened once, but then what happens after that? Verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. See, this is the ongoing part of the Christian life. Yes, you've repented and believed, that's great, and you've died with Christ, but now what happens? Life is just peachy until he takes you up into glory or until he comes again? No, it says that you must endure. You must endure all the way till the end, and if you do, what's the promise? It says we will also reign with him. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that the one who perseveres to the end, what? Will be saved. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. We must fight on, Christians. We must serve with all of our hearts, with a brave and manly submission, enduring all the way till the end with Christ. And see, the end for us is glorious. It's reigning. It's guaranteed a throne. You will share in his heavenly kingdom if you share in his death now and his difficulties in this life. That's a contingency. There's no other way to get to that position of eternal life unless you die with Christ now and you endure until the end. Only way. Now we can look at the other option. Look at the end of verse 12. Say, but if we deny him, he will also deny us. One of the most terrifying verses in Scripture to me is Matthew chapter 10, verse 33. where Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You can choose to follow him or you can reject him. And when I read this verse, my heart trembles because this is such an awful thought. Because I, like you, know so many people who reject Christ. I know so many people who deny Christ, who have not died with him, they have not repented, they have not trusted alone in him, And they are not enduring with him right now. So what does that mean? That means that they have denied Christ. And on that last day, 
either when we all die or when Christ comes again, we will stand before that eternal throne and Jesus will sit there. And if you have denied him, he will deny you to your face in the midst of thousands and thousands of angels, in the presence of the entire universe, all mankind, history past, present, and future, gathered before the throne, and there Jesus Christ denies you. Oh, such an awful thought. That should not be something that you can bear to stand of yourself, let alone of your relatives and of your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. That that is their outcome. If they deny Christ, they deny him, he will deny them when he establishes his kingdom. And the end for that is destruction. It's an eternity of conscious suffering under the wrath of God forever and ever. If you deny Christ, there's no greater mistake you can make. You know, there's really only one good decision you have to make in life. You only have to do one thing right. You can mess up everything else. You can mess up your job. You can mess up your relationships. You can go through life having no friends, having no hobbies. It doesn't matter. You just need to make one good choice. You just need to see God and repent of your sin and trust alone in Jesus to save you. That's the only thing you have to do. And if you do that, then on that final day, Christ will welcome you into his presence and you'll enjoy his glory forever and ever and you will reign with him. And yes, you can make a lot of mistakes in this life and there will be consequences for that afterwards. But ultimately, if you've trusted alone in Christ, you have made the only good decision that you needed to. And similarly, if you reject him, it doesn't matter how successful you are in this life. It doesn't matter if you have everything that this world has to offer, you are a failure. And you will come before him on that last day and he will deny you. And you will realize that that was the most awful, terrible mistake you could have ever made. I pray with all of my heart that that is not you. And yet at the same time, we know that our congregations are always mixed. That even if everyone here professes to be Christian, we know that the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. That there will be many who thought that they didn't deny Christ, who thought they were believers that will come before him on that last day. And they will say, Lord, Lord, do we not do many mighty works in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? I've never cast out a demon before. I've never even done something like that. And yet Jesus will say to these people, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Such an awful mistake. Hear this this morning. There are only two paths, and there are only two outcomes. Don't let that be yours. At all costs, have Christ. Anything is worth it. Anything is worth enduring to have Christ. And so we say, okay, if we die with Christ and we endure with him, what if we sin? What if we're unfaithful to him? Does that mess it all up? Are we out of his grace now? Look at verse 13. We can take comfort because Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Praise God, because I don't know about you, but I am faithless so much. And so much of my life has lived out of a lack of faith in God, lack of faith in his word. And if you, we as a body earlier in the worship service, confess this together, our lack of faith in God, we have sought his forgiveness for it. But hear this, this is the truth. If we are his elect and we have died with him, when we act unfaithfully, God will remain faithful to you. 
And you will remain faithful to you, not because you deserve it, but look at what it says. Because he cannot deny himself. He will remain faithful to you for his own sake, for his own glory. I love this passage. It's because he is faithful. It's because of who he is. This is so glorious. I don't want you to miss it. This is so encouraging. These kind of truths have the power to change people's lives. You can't be lost if you've died with him. You can't be lost because he is so good. He literally, in the Greek it means he does not have the power to be unfaithful to you. He can't do it. There are certain things that God cannot do, believe it or not, and that is one of them. He cannot be unfaithful to his people. Praise God. Praise God that we have such a faithful, loving, merciful, gracious Savior. It's because of who he is we cannot be lost. I want to ask you this. Have you ever had to do something difficult, but you did it because you knew in the end it would be worth it? This looks different for all of us, I think. Maybe if you're a mother... You had to go through a very difficult pregnancy until at the end you had a beautiful baby in your arms. Maybe if you had a hard time in school and you didn't like school, and I didn't really like school, you work very hard and you get all the way to the end so that you can graduate and you can have a degree, and it made all of that study, it made all of that work worth it because in the end you have a job. Or maybe at a job you work very hard to get to that next promotion, to get to that next level, and you push through something that's very difficult. Maybe you have to deal with people that are just a pain to be around. And you, and you stick with it, and you suffer through it because you know in the end it's going to be good. You're going to have a better position. You're going to get that promotion. It's just there on the other side. But what if you didn't know that that would happen? What if you had to go through all of the suffering of pregnancy without knowing if you were going to have a baby or not at the end? What if you didn't know how it was going to turn out? What if you didn't know what it was all for? Maybe you're just going through all this hardship at work, but you don't know what's for an advancement. Maybe you're going through all of this study and difficulty at school, but you don't know that it's going to get you a job in the end. You see, having, having an outcome, knowing what it's working to, changes everything. It puts it all into perspective for us. And what a great encouragement this is. Because we can know that even though our road is hard, and even though as Christians we will suffer a lot in this life, victory is guaranteed for you. Reigning is promised for you. If you continue, if you endure, despite all of our failures, which will be forgiven by God, you will inherit eternal life. This ends well. And so this can change your suffering. You're not suffering, not having any idea what this is working towards. You're suffering knowing that this ends in the presence of God, reigning with him for all of eternity, all for his glory. You can rejoice on this difficult path because you know that there's a bright future ahead for you. And similarly, it should compel us to diligent service and endurance now because of the great end that we anticipate with Christ. And because of the awful end that we will face if we don't endure. Because of the awful end that we'll face if we bow our knee to the suffering. If we tap out and we opt to live this life without Christ and deny him. There's a lot of talk nowadays about being on the right side of history. If you're you know, familiar with the conversations about abortion or homosexuality or transgender rights, it's all about we want to be on the right side of history. Listen to this, church. Being on the side of Jesus is being on the right side of history. No one will agree with you now. That doesn't matter. 
being on Jesus' side is the right side of history. And you can rejoice regardless of how hard this life gets because you know that in the end, it's bright. It's beautiful. Remember the Shire. Remember what awaits you when all of this is over. And if you know that, you can put all of your chips on the table. You can go all in for this. Stake your entire life on this claim. I know that the word of God will prevail now, and I know that I will inherit eternal life in the future. And so I can put my entire life behind this. I can sacrifice everything. I can give up all of my wants, all of my needs. There's nothing I won't suffer or deal with for Christ because this ends well for me. And I know that for certain more than anything else in this life. And so in conclusion, we'll say this. You will suffer in this life. That's true regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. But you will especially suffer as a Christian. I forget who it was that said this. I tried looking it up. I couldn't find it. I, I think it was C.S. Lewis or uh, maybe, Jay, maybe Chesterton. I'm not sure. But they said that there's only three kinds of people in this life. Those who have suffered, those who are suffering, and those who will suffer. Suffering is inevitable here. We live in a fallen, broken world, and I, I fear that sometimes because we live in such a blessed area, our expectations are higher than it should be. We expect things to go well for us, physically, financially, relationally. We expect things to go well for those that we love, but the reality is that, that this is not that kind of world. This is not the kind of world where things go well. This is the kind of world where things go bad, where people break, where people suffer, where people die. And if we keep that in our mind at all times, and we remember that as Christians, this is going to be even more difficult than life is for the normal person. Because you're not just dealing with all the consequences of a fallen world, but you're going against the grain of the universe. You're going against the grain of the culture, of the government, of society. If you recognize that, you will realize that it is so important for you to keep your eyes on Christ, to remember Jesus. I, if you get nothing out of the sermon today, just Hear this. Hear God say to you today, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Turn your gaze away from the darkness like Frodo and remember Jesus. Remember the man, Jesus Christ, for whom all of your suffering is worth it. Remember his word, which is unchained and ensures the success of your efforts in this world, guaranteeing that your suffering is not in vain. You will prevail now. And lastly, remember his relationship with you which promises that your endurance will end in eternal life with him despite all of the failures you make in this life. And so, church, I pray that in hearing this word, we would press on with all of our mights, that we would be encouraged in the bottom of our hearts. Throughout all of our hardships, we would remember Christ and that our feet would be swift to follow him wherever that leads us and whatever suffering we may face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is purely by your grace that you have given us this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we ask that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified to cause this to have the right effect on our hearts. That you would turn our eyes away from all of the darkness that dominates our attention. That we would remember you. Cause us to remember Christ. And cause us, Father, to be encouraged in the bottom of our hearts. And to be compelled, motivated, inspired to endurance, to digital, di diligent servitude for the rest of our lives with all of our hearts. Let us hold nothing back from you, Father. Cause us all in this room 
to be of your children, to have truly repented and believed, to have died with you, that we might also live with you. And if there are any of us that are still denying you, that have still rejected you, change our hearts this morning. It takes the power of your Holy Spirit. It is impossible otherwise. Do that for your own glory in us. Make us an encouraged church and make us a church that endures for your own name's sake and for your own glory. We ask that you would do this for us. Amen.